Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Elizabeth Reese. I'm Marjorie Punnett. And this is Best to the Nest, the podcast that is all about creating strong, comfortable, beautiful nests that prepare us to fly. And we're back on the parenting topic today, Marjorie. Why? Because we are humans, humans who have children, and um, <laughs> we want them to grow up to be functional and pleasant and uh, peaceful, joyful people. So how do we do it? <laughs> well, that's the key word is pleasant. And the I think sometimes the opposite of pleasant would be anger, frustration, tantrums, temper, all of those things that I think you're in the midst of a little bit of that now. Yeah. I think most parents who have anywhere, it's the two, three, four, five. Oh, especially the three. Holy moly. Yeah. And how how you teach your child to deal with their frustration or their anger or their temper when they're this age has lasting effects of how they'll deal with it when they're teenagers. And for me, when I had, I have, I had two boys and I knew pretty early on, like, that's the most important thing with boys and girls. But when you're a woman and you're raising sons, you mm-hmm. know that if they don't know how to manage their anger when they're teenagers, yeah, you, you're, you're kind of done for because <laughs> they're bigger than you. They're stronger than you. They could do more damage than you. And temper, tempers have to be, You've got to figure out how how to manage that. And I, I, I was always amazed at, at parents who did such a poor job of that. And I generally don't judge other parents because I think every child is different. Everybody's dealing with different circumstances. So, you know, if a child's having a tantrum, I never looked at the parent like, oh, your kid's having a tantrum. Right. I usually looked at the parent like, oh, that's how you're going to deal with that? What's your response going to be? What's your response going to be? Because kids are going to have tantrums. Kids are going to... Not all kids, but some kids are going to hit. Some are going to bite. How do you deal with that? Right. And I think I think it's 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 really important. And I was talking about this with my son Campbell, who sent me the coolest article about how the Inuit deal with anger in their own culture, in their roles as parents with their children, and and that got us started talking about sort of global parenting and how different cultures have different traditions. So we wanted to share some of that with everybody today. Yeah, it's interesting to look at where we're so U.S. focused. The United States is kind of a narcissistic place. Where we like oh, to yeah. think that oh, yeah. this is how we do things and this is so wonderful and we live in the best country in the world, which I agree we live in the best country in the world. That being said, I think sometimes we can miss out on some of the really important lessons from other places. And and you can all remember if you grew up in a yelling household yeah. or if you went to friends' houses who had yelling households. Like I remember – I don't think we had a major yelling household. I mean I remember my dad being pushed to the edge right. and you know, and getting stern and kind of scary sometimes, which was sometimes important, sometimes maybe not as important. And then I remember going to certain friends' houses and being like, wow – 
there's a lot of yelling here. Like everyone's yelling all the time. And so I'm conscious of that. Uh, That being said, I mean, just this morning, Marjorie, we're getting our three-year-old out the door. And I mean, boy, do I love my Frankie. He is a joy. We used to call him our joy boy when he was tiny because he would smile so much. He is so smiley and so loving. But it's also like, I mean in practice of just trying to get him out the door this morning, it's like, okay, bud, let's go get your shoes on. Let's get coat on whatever. And when you've set it fun and you've kind of like made it into a game five times, 10 times, and it still doesn't happen. Right. It's like you are at the breaking point. You know what I mean? And so I have a lot of empathy for parents because I did say to Franklin, I said, now we are at the point where it's beyond making it fun. We have to get it done. Let's go. This is it. This is, an, you know, and you have to get like, but then I don't feel great when I talk to him like that. Like, I don't want to talk to him like that before he leaves. But right. when you've tried 15 different ways of like, let's have a race. Let's put our shoes on. And it still hasn't happened. I mean, Marjorie, you're like, we got to get this show on the road. I've got two other kids. I've got two jobs. I got other stuff to do. <laughs> Well, and that was always the worst. One of the worst feelings, I think, when I was mothering as well, is when you would, when I would lose it right before they were going to go to school. Oh, gosh. Yes. Knowing that the rest of the day that was going to sit with the kids and sit with me, because I knew my boys, it would sit with them, especially gar the older one even to this day if he snaps at me or if he says something and he thinks he's hurt my feelings he'll always be like wait are, let's talk about that are you okay like it's Aww. it's so he's very aware of that and and he was just the same as a young boy so if we would get into it and it was more often than not gar and i would sort of butt heads because we're a lot alike yeah and so we would sort of butt heads campbell and i never not so much but the sweetness of it was is i knew it would sit with him almost as much as it would sit with me which breaks your heart even more as a mom because you're thinking oh he feels sad at school i don't want him to feel sad at school and you have chance you have no chance to make it up until like three o'clock and so i think all of all of that rolls back into this article which was which was I wish I had read this. So many of the things we talk about, Elizabeth, on <laughs> Best of the Nest, I like. I wish I had read this when the kids were born. Yeah. Like every, this would, I would print this article out, roll it up, put a ribbon on it, and it would be a shower gift to somebody. Yeah, yeah. Because it's that interesting. So let me let me read a little bit of it, and then and then you've got a German, uh, a book about raising children in a German tradition, which we're going to get to too, which I, I love both of these. But this was uh, this was in an, on the NPR site, and it starts, back in the 1960s, a Harvard graduate student made a landmark discovery about the nature of human anger. At age 34, Jean Briggs traveled above the Arctic Circle and lived out on the tundra for 17 months. She persuaded an Inuit family to adopt her and to keep her alive, she says. <laughs> um, Briggs quickly realized something remarkable was going on in these families. The adults had an extraordinary ability to control their anger. They never acted in anger toward me, although they were angry with me an awful lot. She said She said this in an interview. This anthropologist died in 2016. Uh, she wrote up her observations in her first book called Never in Anger, which I actually want to get that book now. Yeah. Um, but she was left with a lingering question. How do Inuit parents instill this ability in their children? How do Inuit take tantrum-prone toddlers and turn them into cool-headed adults? Across the board, the article goes on to say, what it comes down to is the Inuit never, ever shout at small children. 
Yeah. And I shouted at my small children. Not a lot. I don't think I was a yeller. I mean, I think there are moms that that's their go-to move all the time. Right. Right. I was, I could be pushed to the breaking point. Yeah. And if you push me to the breaking point when the kids were little, I have, I had a temper. And Mm -hmm. I I think I've told the story on, on Best of the Nest before, but Campbell was like three and was such a mellow kid. And we were talking when he was three or four and we were talking and he said, mom, I wish you didn't have such a big temper. He told me that. Yeah. And and that that was the beginning. And then I really like when your four year old's telling you, I don't like it when you're that person, that's easy. For me, that was easy to change. Yeah. Um easy to change. But they go on to talk about how important it is not to yell at young children and that in the tradition of the Inuit, it's about nurturing and by about being tender especially with the youngest of children. And if you think about that, how important that is, if you take away anger as a model, Mm -hmm. most kids won't, if you're not modeling it, most kids won't do it. I mean, I think, I think they will a little bit, but if, if, if your response is never to match their anger with your anger, I think it would suffice. I mean, it's a grand experiment, but they go on to say the culture, the Inuit culture views scolding or even speaking to children in an angry voice as inappropriate and also as a failure of the adult, that in some way it's the adult who should be sort of shamed because they're not able to keep control of their own, own emotions and they should know better. It's Isn't a lot. fascinating? It's a lot. But they, they go on... Oh, sorry, no, I love their point, too, about what, what I'm sure you're going to get into, which is then how do you get the lessons across? Right. Because yeah. the the feeling is, all right, that's all fine and good. You can go, I'm just never going to get angry. But let's go back to my example this morning of trying to get Franklin out the door. I mean, we have certain things that have to happen in our home and certain expectations that have to be met. And so it, I think that most people ideally would say, I don't want to yell at my kids. I don't want to be mad at my kids and I don't want to be yelling before they're out the door. But at the same time, it's like when you've said it 10 times, I mean, Marjorie, it's like, frick, yeah. dude, l- l- ha! put your <laughs> shoes on. <laughs> put your shoes on. Dude. Oh, well, my gosh. Here, herein lies the problem with the this idea of never yelling at a young child or always showing patience and tenderness. The problem in doing that in our culture is it takes time. Yeah. And if I look back at the times when I would lose it, it was for exactly that reason. Yes. As I was trying to catch the 830 train downtown, I had to get out of the house. I had to make sure certain things were done. Yeah. I was tired. So, so much of, I think, of our bad parenting in our culture is because we're overextended. Children take time. They, they take, take so time. much time. Yeah. And, and I think they are that, slow to do so many things. Like, put yes. Your shoes on. <laughs> yes. It's slow and don't really have time for explanation. I know. And all of those things. But in the Inuit culture, some of the things, some of the ways that they get children to behave, and I think this is, I don't know 100% how I feel about this. I know. Is telling them stories. And so a couple of examples. So you say, you know, how do you teach your kids not to run into the street? Or how do you teach your kids to be safe? All of those things. Well, they tell stories. In the Inuit culture, this article said that they tell stories. Things like, where was one of them? One of the stories was about if, to get the children to stay away from the ocean, because the ocean is dangerous. Mm -hmm. That there's a sea monster in the ocean that has a sack on his back. And if you venture into the ocean, he's going to 
collect you up and bring you to and give you to another family. Imagine <laughs> okay. saying that to Franklin. I, just, I can't. And I read this. And this is the thing about like parables and stories and fairy tales, right? I mean, all of these things are meant to teach lessons to your children. It is, but I I mean, we've gotten to the point where the idea, like when I think about like Hansel and Gretel and that story of like, I was just talking about this with my dad the other day because my dad picked up some book and was reading it to our, one of my kids. And he was like, boy, that was intense. I forgot how intense that was. And, (laughs) and I said, yeah, like Hansel and Gretel, when the little boy and the little girl go and find this beautiful house made out of candy and they start eating it. And the witch is saying, yeah, keep eating it because he's, the witch is going to put them in the oven and cook the children and eat the children. Yes. It is a very dark tale. And the sea monster coming to attack you to reach out of the ocean and grab you and then put you on his back and then take you to another family. That is also scary to tell a kid. But I did, one thing I did get from this article in NPR where they were talking about that with the Inuit people is that those stories are always told with like a little bit of a sense of mischief and wonder and kind of teasing. So they get the message, but it's in, and so it's kind of a scary message because it does need to be scary, right? It is scary. The idea of floating out into the ocean is realistically scary. You're going to think twice about stepping into the ocean by yourself. Right. If you're thinking that there's a sea monster out there that's going to throw you into a sack and deliver you to another family. They said there's another one. I love this one because it's so dark. The story, they use the northern lights. And the story is it's to help kids keep their hats on, that they have to make sure that they wear their hats. I mean, they're in frigid cold weather. Oh, yeah. They're living off of whale. And one of the women, one of the Inuit women said, our parents told us that if we went out without a hat, the northern lights are going to take your head off and use it as a soccer ball. Yeah. Well, that's scary. <laughs> I know. That's super scary. Right. But, but at the same time, when you look at like every Bible story, terrifying. Yeah. I mean, all of those stories, like I will, I remember the time of learning about, about Isaac, you know, and the potential sacrifice that was going to be made to God. And God said, like, give me your son and we're going to go up and bring a right. knife and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, this is the test. This is the kind <laughs> of test. That you're doing? Like, this is terrifying. So there are, there are, but but you can't take it too far. And I think the Bible is usually the first example. But I, but does it? And I was talking to Ian when he was getting his PhD. I remember him having this conversation with me about something called transportation theory. And so I called him this morning. I'm like, go over transportation theory again. And basically it's what PhD people do is they put names to things that we sort of know intuitively. And transportation theory is that people are when, – when you tell somebody, don't do this, and yeah. you just tell them, like, don't go in the ocean, our human nature is to resist that. We right. resist people telling us what to do. But if you tell somebody through a story not to do something, the story lowers their resistance to resisting that message. I and get that's it. transportation theory. So yeah. if so that's exactly what the Inuit have done. It's it is ancient transportation theory of you you can tell your kids twenty times, don't go in the ocean. Well, why can't I? It's beautiful. It looks fun. Look at those waves. Yeah. Transportation theory would tell you, tell them a story that there's a sea monster in there and they're gonna hear that message in a different way. Of course they are. And when I started thinking about this, I essentially did this with my kids, but I did it differently than the Inuit in that 
I told them very scary real stories. And Mm. this is probably the news producer in me. Yeah. Is I would just tell them when I wouldn't want them to wander away. I mean, probably from too young of age, of an age, I, my sister went to school with a boy that was kidnapped by John Wayne Gacy. Oh, gosh. So I told the kids that story. Yeah. <laughs> that, that'll scare them to be yeah. about walking around in the city by yourself. You need to be on your toes. You need to be aware. You need to be. So I was always telling them. And I look back and I think, God, that's really awful. And was that the right thing to do? And did I fill them with anxiety? And I didn't. And I'm grateful for that because really what I was doing was transporting my own anxiety. I don't really think it was transportation theory. I think I was just, (laughs) I think I was just anxious. But that's, I would tell them, you know, there would be something in the news that I thought would relate to, you know, whether it was a story about a teenager that got drunk and hit somebody or I was always telling them cautionary tales out of the news, which saved me from having to lie because that's where I sort of had that was like, oh, I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that I could tell the kids that there was a sea monster in the ocean. Because there, I, there isn't, right. Yeah, but I guess I'm scared enough of the ocean that I just told them all the treacherous things that sharks could do. So, I mean, in, in a sense, I'm telling them the same thing. But but that was sort of the Inuit answer to how do you get them to not do the things that they shouldn't be doing. And I think you're exactly right, and you sort of hit the finer point of it, which is, they were saying it with a sense of mischief and a little bit of fun in it. So I think that also tempers it. And I think that's why that strategy might have been a little bit better than my strategy of doomsday news stories that had no sense of fun or wonder. <laughs> there's, definitely, there's definitely no wonder there, which is, interestingly enough, brings us to the way that German parents parent that I have um, been really into lately because I read that book and I talked about it on the podcast before, Achung Baby, An American Mom on the German Art of Raising Self-Reliant Children. And it's interesting that you talk about, okay, so how to get your kids to be responsible and not put themselves in danger. And the Germans have a really interesting way of doing that in that they just instill self-reliance and independence in them as early as possible. Right. So this mom who wrote this book, um, it was really fascinating. And um, I read it a few months ago and I've been thinking about it so much. The Germans allow their little kids to walk to school by themselves all the time. And the right. Germans invented the concept of kindergarten that comes from Germany. And so little kids, five years old, are walking to school on their own. And in America today, I mean, that's just completely unheard of. If you see a five-year-old walking to school by themselves, I mean, people are driving by going, what is happening here? You know what I mean? I I will tell you, there's a school right near where I live in Tempe. And I saw a little brother and sister walking together, and they had to be like seven and five. Mm-hmm. And they looked so little. So they just small. looked so little. And I thought, I bet the mom's out here somewhere watching, like <laughs> like, like just watching and making sure they're okay. But yeah. I think you could technically actually get in trouble. If you I think really- now. Yeah, I think you could. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, my parents used to leave us in cars by ourselves all the time. Oh, yeah. Um, Hot cars, too. We liked it when they were hot because it was nice and cozy in there. (laughs) Not allowed now. Thank goodness. And then we would walk everywhere and we would tool around everywhere. And Jay and I were just having this conversation the other day where he said at some point soon, we're going to have to talk about like, where are we going to let 
them go. And we live in the city. We live in the middle of the city. And so how far will we let them go? And we were discussing how far we were able to go when we were kids. Well, in Germany, kids are taught to be independent and self-reliant. And they have a couple of really interesting examples of that. There are these adventure parks that are these big parks and like they're like a playground, but then they have all these different things that they can, that kids can do. And they are deliberately kind of dangerous. Like they are intense, Marjorie. I mean, if you've ever been to a modern day playground and thought everything is made out of plastic and nothing can burn you or poke you. When I was a kid, everything was made out of metal. And if you went down a hot slide, you had burned back of your thighs. And there was generally something rusted that could puncture you and give you some sort of, you know, (laughs) tetanus tetanus situation um, at any given moment. Well, that has all gone away in the United States. She makes this argument in the book because of lawsuits, because things went wrong, parents sued, and so everything had to change. And in Germany, they have these adventure parks where, yes, kids have gotten hurt, but the courts have not upheld any lawsuits against the communities because the importance of kids learning how to take risks and understanding their own independence and figuring out how far they can push themselves is such a valued trait that they simply won't do anything to infringe upon that culturally. And it's fascinating. And then at a park in general, she also describes in this book going to German parks with her children and and kind of at first – hovering around them. And I, I take my kids to neighborhood parks all the time. And so I was I was thinking about this even the last couple of times that I've been at the park. I was at the park a few weeks ago and there was this dad and he was like hovering over his little girl. And she was probably about Frankie's age, maybe a little younger. So Franklin's right. three and a half. So she was probably two and a half, three. And he kept going, if you if you go up higher than that, then you're not going to be able to play and I'm going to have to take you down. If you go Ooh. up any higher, I'm going to have to take you down. And he was hovering over her. And I thought, what are you doing, dude? Like, what are you doing? And all these parents who are in the playground with the children standing right over them all the time. And in right. Germany, this mother describes that German parents are not on the playground at all. In fact, German parents are off to the side chatting with other parents and having a coffee and having a conversation or sitting with a book or whatever, not looking up every five seconds and certainly not standing on by every climbing apparatus preparing to help their child if they fall down. And I'm in the situation where I have Heathcliff now, who is three months old, Marjorie, so I have him in a stroller, so I stand with him because I, I got to, like, keep him moving a little bit. Right. And it's really been fun because I thought, like, I'm just not that hovering of a parent at a park. And I don't feel like I need to play with my kids all the time. Like, I can take them to a park. Go play at the park. <laughs> right. I'm not going right. to, like, that, That's why you're there. here. Yeah. Yes. And when they get – and I've noticed, too, when they get – like, Bernie will kind of get in a bind and she'll go, I I don't think I can get down. Mama, I can't get down. And I'm standing with Heathcliff and I kind of talk her through it instead of going over and grabbing her and pulling her down. I'm going, hey, okay, reach that back leg down. You're almost there. Just one more inch and you're going to reach it. And then she has gotten down herself. And the pride that she feels from accomplishing something herself is unbelievable and so big. And then she runs over to me and I say, I knew you could do it. I knew you could do it. And she's so proud and how she would have missed out on that moment if I would have rushed over, grabbed her and pulled her down. 
Yeah, it's. I think for a lot of us, that's easier said than done. And I'm always grateful that I was married to somebody who was very much about let the kids be kids. Yeah. Back the heck away. Yeah. You know, he was such a good – Ian was such a good balance for me because I think I I'm definitely would have been more of the anxious type usually. And that's really why Ian's job was to take the kids to the park. <laughs> so I really – and this will sound horrible. I didn't like taking my kids to the park. I got super bored and I just, it just, I just didn't enjoy it. I mean, that's yeah. just a terrible thing to say as a mother. I no, just didn't enjoy not. it. I just didn't enjoy it. And so, you know, in the divvy up of the, and I also didn't enjoy kids' movies. So every Pokemon <laughs> movie, that was Ian's job. I am not going to a Pokemon movie. I, I know, can't, but those, I can't. Are, those aren't even good movies. So that's no, okay. No, I, I can't, I cannot do it. I can't. And so those two things were really where he really shined or shone, whatever the right word is. And he, because he was really naturally able to do that. And both of us are of the generation where we were wanderers. My mm. best memories as a kid was some of the summers when my mom would have a summer girl because my mom worked. And the summer girl literally locked us out of the house. <laughs> and so we would just have to make our way. And, of course, this is a time where there were mostly stay-at-home moms. My mom was the outlier. And so if there was an emergency, we would just go to, like, someone else's house. But the summer girl wanted nothing to do with us. It was like, you all go, get out, get out. Oh, that is so <laughs> she was, funny. She was terrible. I mean, And they didn't have cameras all over your house like you do now. Now you have right. a nanny and you're like, okay, we have 45 cameras so we can see yeah. every single thing that you do. In my memory, I don't know how long she lasted because I'm sure we told on her. Yeah, But sure. that having been said, some of my greatest memories were just being out with my sister and particularly my sister Jamie. And we would just wander all over the place. And I oh, was yeah. probably, this is when we lived in the suburbs of Chicago, I was probably... No, I'm not kidding, like four and five years old because we left the suburbs when I was six and moved into the city. So, I mean, I just – I have such strong memories of that and they're good memories. I have no traumatic memories from wandering by myself as a young child, nor does Ian. And one of the things – one of the great things that we were able to do with our kids when Gar went to the school – Campbell was too young – but in one of the suburbs of Chicago, there was a preschool program called Cornflakes. And you would have loved this, Elizabeth. It was an outdoor preschool. Oh, I love that. The kids did not stay inside. Yeah. No matter what the weather. And so you would see the cornflakes. They were called the cornflakes kids. (laughs) And they would be, they would all be walking on a rope because they were four and five, I think, three, four and five. Yeah. It was before kindergarten. So they would all be on a rope. And even in the winter, and the preschool was like 10 blocks from Lake Michigan. So they would take them down to the lake. They would take them to the beach. They would take them. And the greatest part about it is Gar would get home. At noon, and he'd be exhausted. Oh, for sure. Because they just marched them around, but they were they were doing. It was it was really, and he has really good memories of that. And I think when you look at that German sensibility of making them strong, that what else are we supposed to be doing with our kids? Right, right. You're totally right. I mean, we are supposed to be creating independent people. We are supposed to be creating people who are strong and self-confident and people who know their own limits and know what and know how to assess risk for themselves. Right. Because that's what they have to do as they as they get older. I mean, you can always I don't know, you can all think about even like the kids who clearly in high school had really tight reins and then in yeah. college just completely went off of their rockers because 
they had no idea how to live life without having restrictions, even like down to drinking. I mean, and listen, I'm not a proponent of teenage drinking, and I am certainly very concerned about what that will look like when my children are older. That being said, I did drink in high school and in college prior to being 21, and there was some benefit in terms of knowing my limits better because I like experimented a little bit before I got to college versus getting to college and my friends who never drank at all in high school got to college and it was like, let's go, let's go. And it could get really dangerous. And I, you know, I mean, those are, those are tricky conversations to have and tricky decisions to be making. And then obviously there's the legal aspect of it that you have to consider as well. But it's not like my parents were saying, Hey, here, drink, but I think there was always that that understanding of independence. I remember my mom signing a stack of notes for me to, so that I could sign myself out of school. Oh, in high I school. love that. Oh, so I love she that. signed a stack with her name. And then yep. if it was like I was late or I had an appointment, like a doctor's yep. appointment, or I had – or even like sometimes if I just didn't have – anything going on in a class or something like that, she would let me sign out. And the reason was, was because it was like, Hey, you're going to get to college in two years and you're going to be able to sign. You don't, you don't have to go to class. No one's going to tell you to go to class. You have to get up and go to class and you have to be able to understand and navigate what's important for you to be at and what isn't and how can you then handle the consequences if you choose the wrong thing to skip. Yeah, I think um and and that brings us to sort of toddler freedom, decision making, self-reliance, what that looks like then in middle school and what that looks like in high school. Yes, and I think yes. I think what's really important is starting them young, which I would say my husband was much better like I said than I was at that. I think where I felt much more confident in my kids' own independence was by middle school. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I my children took the bus to school, the city bus. The city bus, guys. The city bus. I and love it. And occasionally other, a cab. <laughs> uh, yes. But other parents thought that was weird. Yeah. Like they thought that that was – but they were in seventh and ninth grade. I know. I mean, my God. If you can't take a bus, a city bus by yourself by the time you're in seventh grade – like this is where my city girlness comes out. Right. Like – you get on a bus. You I can know. figure out a bus system. My kids could read bus and train schedules and could at a very young age. And I look at that as a really important step to their independence that they were not carpooled their whole life. I know. And I think it has had just that little step of making them be independent in that way. And and they truly did have to walk a mile from the bus stop to their school. Like, it's no joke. Like, when they tell their kids, we had to walk a mile, they did. They had to walk from the Mall of America up to their school, which was about 10 blocks away. And they said, we would hear about it in teacher conferences sometimes. Because <laughs> the teachers would be like, yeah, we saw them walking in the snow and we thought maybe we should stop and pick them up. I'm like, no, they're perfectly happy and they have each other. They're fine. Yeah. They're fine. Yeah. And I think part of that has led to the kind of men that they are. I mean, they'll do stuff which I find so interesting. I mean, Campbell went off to San Diego when he was like, I think he was 21 and stayed at a Buddhist monastery for a couple of weeks with his $15 tent. Gar (laughs) decided he had like a summer where it was just sort of like a 
a summer that he kind of had free and he had saved enough money. So he bought a foldable bike, bought a pass that took him all around America on Amtrak and went around and literally would call up like general managers and corporate corporate people about corporate officers of sustainability. And he would just call them. He would cold call them and say, hey, I'm in Detroit. He did this in Detroit. And he called the, the chief of sustainability, I think it was General Motors, and said, hey, I'm in town. Could I take you out for coffee just to talk about what General Motors is doing? So smart. And the guy said yes. But he would call me. He would literally call me. He's like, yeah, I'm in San Francisco. I just biked from San Francisco up like 15 miles away. And it was so cool to see the pictures along the way. And he was all by himself. And I, I mean, he was, he was in his twenties, but I think that sort of navigation, that sort of interest in doing something different and being independent sort of was, in, we did encourage that at a fairly young age. I think the, what you're saying though, I think particularly about the park thing, Marjorie, where you said that was Ian's thing. And I do yeah. think if you're in a relationship and you're co-parenting with somebody, it is important to look at, okay, what is that person good at in bringing out the independence and what right. am I good at? And, right. and figuring out how you can navigate those things together and what are you both comfortable with and right. uh, and really going back to okay how was I raised I mean that was what was fun about the conversation that Jay and I had the other day which was what was I doing when we were kids we were laughing so hard because we were talking about Jay said well we would go to the gas station and I said yeah we would bike to this place called George's Market which was right. a like right. convenience store and I said and we would try to find as much money as we could so that we could buy clearly Canadian and as much bubble tape as we could <laughs> shove in our pockets and and Jay was laughing because he was like, oh, Black Cherry Clearly Canadian was always at the top of the list of what oh, we wanted, funny. which is so funny because we grew up at the same time. And so we have like those memories of what was really big then. And and so those fond memories of that independence and that sort of exploration, when you recount those from your own childhood, I think it becomes easier to start to imagine how can I come up with ways in today's world to make sure that my children have those similar experiences. Right. And I do think that there is, we've got to start normalizing kids' independence more. And I kind of felt even when I was at the park and when that dad was so hovering over that little girl, I was like, God, this is killing me. But there was something about me just hanging back and like calling to them. Right. Just, I mean, I was right there, but not standing right next to them, I feel like is a little bit of a personal stance to say, hey, other parents, like, this is okay. We can right. do this. We don't have to be these psycho helicopter parents that somehow we evolved into when we weren't raised that way. And I know it's a different world and I know things are different and it is important to always be on alert. And But the best defense that your kids have against something bad happening to them is them being strong, confident, independent kids yeah. because then they're able to say no. And that is the thing that they need to learn most. Well, we say it's a different world. And I would say in some ways, in terms of all of the things we worry about as parents, our kids being kidnapped or something untoward happening to them, it might statistically be a better world because a lot of this stuff is out in the open now. Mm -hmm. I don't think – I don't think – I would have to look this up, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it, but I don't know that the world is that much more dangerous now than it was when we were children. I don't think it is. I think it's less dangerous. I think statistically, if you looked this up, yeah, 
if one did that in preparation for a conversation like that, which I did not do, you would <laughs> you would find that the world is less dangerous, that there are fewer is. kidnappings. There are all those things. It's actually interesting. The most dangerous things that are likely to happen to your kids are the things that happen around people that you know or right. if they're being exposed to things on screens. Right. And we're we're like holding them tight and and we're probably doing the opposite of what we need to be doing. Well, I think there's there's a lot to take in in this episode. So we thank the Inuit. We thank the Germans. Yes. We thank our parents for letting us run free. But it, <laughs> it is complicated. It is just complicated. And I think I think uh, the more the more you read, the more you look around. Well, I'm not going to say that. What I am going to say is I think the one thing that's going to stick from me from this conversation is that idea of Bernie being stuck and what it looks like. When she gets herself out of that situation. Yeah. And I think we all know that feeling of self-reliance when we're able to solve our own problems. And it's important to understand how much that means to a three-year-old, a four-year-old, and a five-year-old. Because once they can do that, they're going to make much better decisions when they're 15. And I think that's really when the dangerous behavior, well, probably starts around 12 or 13. And you want a kid that knows that they've gotten themselves out of situations with a cool head. I think that's the, that's the important part. Oh, I totally agree. Good job, Marjorie. Mm, and then we'll your see. kids can bike around everywhere. Yes. And call CEOs. I love it. All right. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review at Apple Podcasts. We would like that too. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Best of the Nest or go to bestofthenest.com to subscribe to our newsletter. We are the podcast that brings you home. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com.